welcome to the Navit Gaming Podcast, where it is our mission to explore the business and future of video games. We bring together the industry's brightest builders, investors, and thinkers to keep a pulse on current events, dissect emerging trends and games, share lessons learned, and have a great time. This podcast is also part of Novik's growing ecosystem, which ranges from free and premium research to consulting and advisory services. For more information, visit www.novik.co. Now, let's jump into the episode. Hi, everyone. I'm your host, Aaron Bush, and I'm delighted to share the mic today with Sebastian Park. Now, there's a good chance you've heard Sebastian on this podcast before if you listen to our weekly roundtables, but Sebastian is always such a fun and insightful person to chat with. So we figured it makes sense to carve out some extra space to really dig in to a few important topics today. If you don't know Sebastian, he's worn a few hats over the past decade. He has a super interesting background in esports and more recently is co-founder of Infinite Canvas, a UGC-related gaming startup. And he's also a venture partner at Bitcraft. He'll share more as we get into the episode. But today, we're going to really drill down on that trifecta of topics, esports, UGC, and venture capital. Seb, welcome back. How are you doing? Good, man. Thank you for having me as always. Always a lot of fun to talk with you all out here. Of course. I think this is going to be a really good episode. And probably the best place to start is esports, which was the cornerstone of your gaming career uh, for quite a while. And as I understand your esports story, and feel free to expand on this however you think um, is interesting, but after a couple short Esports leadership stance in the mid in the mid teens. You became the creator of Clutch Gaming in partnership with the Houston Rockets. You were their VP of esports, um, and that team participated in the LCS, the League of Legends, in North America at the time. And you know, I guess fun fact: when I first started, what was Master of the Meta at the time, um, I would spend my weekends watching watching league that in between the breaks would, you know, crunch out my my writing. So I remember Hell yeah. I remember some of those those clutch teams. Um but anyway, so that was just kind of fun to to think back on as I was doing some research. But you went on to sell clutch to HBSC, which in turn merged um that entity with Dignitas. So there's quite a lot of history in there, but uh, maybe an interesting place to start is to take us behind the scenes. Like how did you even find yourself in that position with the Houston Rockets to begin with. And what did you learn as a founder executive yeah. in that era of esports? That's It was a fun era for sure. Uh, perhaps one of the more sustainable eras that we've seen in the last decade. <laughs> I So before then, I was working on just mobile games, mobile gaming in general in the early 2010s, doing a lot of startups, Y Combinator type startups out in San Francisco. And I was, you know, tooling around with sabermetric models, especially around esports and gaming. And the way I actually got that gig was really fun. I had just ended my stint at Team Archon, which is a Hearthstone and Dota team. And I was hanging out with a friend when I uh, at eating oysters, and she was like, "Hey, come meet some of my other friends from business school." I met these friends, and we we're just talking about. Uh, this guy and and how his daughter his daughter's name is Kayla and I happened to know that Kayla meant banana in in their language and so I was like <laughs> thought that was really funny. Uh, in any case, one thing led to another. He said, "Hey, you should meet my cousin. Uh, my cousin is a guy named Sachin Gupta, who more most recently was a part of the Minnesota Timberwolves organization." And talked to him about it. He had just been let go 
from the 76ers, actually, because he was part of Sam Hinkie's team when they got um, they had that famous letter and and you know trust the process. Talk to Sach. Sach at some point, nothing happens for months, and then at some point he sends me a call and says, "Hey, the Houston Rockets are looking for someone. Would you be interested in talking to them?" I uh, you know got a chance to talk to the then owner Leslie Alexander and and Tad Brown, the then CEO and the then GM Daryl Morey. Really got to spend a, a lot of awesome time out there. Um, they they extended me an offer, moved to Houston, Texas, just straight up moved, <laughs> packed up my bags, went to Houston, knew no one in Houston, wow. and dove straight in into sports, esports, sabermetrics. And I gotta say, that was one of the like coolest times of my career in life because that lunch table that I used to go eat lunch with people is one of the more ridiculous tables I've ever been a part of. Because if you actually <laughs> think about the people who were at the Rockets in 2016. Yeah, Daryl Morey, who is now the GM and president of basketball at the 76ers. You have Tad, who's the CEO of the 76ers. Gretchen Shear is now the president of the Rockets. But on the basketball analytics side, Rafael Stone is now the GM of the Rockets. Monty McNair is now the GM of the Sacramento Kings. Wow. Gerson Rosas was the GM of the Timberwolves. <laughs> and then Sachin was there too. Gerson is now at MSG. Uh, Van Hall, and they're not even the smartest people. They'll all agree that Eli, Whitus, and Van Hall, Kwong were the smartest people of that group. And they're off doing some really cool stuff too. So it was a really fun crew to learn not only basketball, but also management and sports management and business management from these guys. They're, they're real cool cats. Yeah, I'm curious to hear, hear your thoughts on the intersection of traditional sports and esports at that time. I know, um, you know, uh, many of these teams saw esports as like a way to extend their brand, to stay competitive in other ways. I'm curious, as you look back, um, did that combination make, does it make as much sense in hindsight, one? And then two, I'm just curious what you learned from traditional sports that actually was pretty interesting and compelling for for esports. Yeah, you... I can't speak highly enough of Leslie Alexander, the then owner of the Rockets, who initially hired me in. And, and part of the reason is because he didn't see it as a brand extension. He saw mm. esports. And one of the reasons I joined the Rockets was he saw esports as a really interesting industry. He had bought the Rockets for about $80 million in 94 and saw it grow to $2.2 billion, which he then sold like while my tenure there. He saw similar growth paths. And I think that's actually similar to what we saw with the Rockets at the time, which is, hey, esports, if it's going to be like traditional sports, it's going to be a little bit like a Picasso. It's going to be an asset that appreciates over time. If we can just operate it really efficiently, that over time, it's going to appreciate in value. And we'll go from there. And to that extent, you know, I actually spent the first year with my, at the Rockets, um, not only learning from Tad and Daryl and everyone else, but I actually, we spent a lot of time evaluating esports teams. We spent a lot of time on the acquisition side, seeing if there's anyone to buy or anyone to partner with. We ended up passing and creating Clutch Gaming instead, in part because we were like, hey, folks are focused on sort of the venture-style growth ecosystem, as opposed to us, where we're like, actually, no, we're not actually effectively venture-backed here. What we're looking for is slow asset appreciation over time and then getting beta exposure to esports. What's really cool, and I think this is the best people in the space at the time, thought that franchising was really important. And the reason franchising was important and great was because as much as people are seeing the negative externalities of bad actors today, there were so many more bad actors in the early 2010s. And I think one thing that people forget is 
I was uh, sponsored by a variety of companies, one of which, which I don't even know if I'm legally allowed to name anymore, you know, owed me like a hundred grand, right, for our team. And if they didn't pay me by December 29th and payrolls on like January 2nd that year, we would have gone bankrupt. <laughs> like we were like, Ugh, we're literally man. putting money into the company and floating it, right? And so, and they're like, oh, the money's on the way, the money's on the way. But how can you trust if some random European, either Polish or Russian or Ukrainian company is saying that money's on the way? You can't. Like it was just, it was rough times back then. Not being paid for months at a time was often a given as opposed to a requirement. The joke always was, hey, you always make the first three months, but you'll never make the last three months of your paycheck or your contract in, in the space, right? And so we saw franchising and especially the people who are coming in with deeper pockets and access to better things as a valuable trade-off against having franchising. And so that was one of the cooler parts of the entire system at the time. And uh, Clutch was very fortunate in that you know, we, were, uh, we went through the application process with the LCS uh, we had evaluated the LCS versus Overwatch League, decided that the LCS was worth, was worth doing, that Overwatch League wasn't for a variety of ancillary reasons, and then went with uh, League of Legends, got the slot, was really fortunate to do so, and then built out an interesting team that we you know, really ran uh, efficiently and, and went from there. Yeah, so maybe just to kind of put a bow on that story before we talk about esports today. Um, obviously, as I mentioned, um, Clutch was still somewhat short-lived in the sense that it did get sold and then merged into Dignitas. Um, how do you reflect mm-hmm. back on um, you know, all those transactions that took place and you know, just what led to, to that being the end result? Yeah, uh, uh, so we, the Rockets get sold to Tillman Fertitta. And one of the things that I was always t- taught to do is you always give your best analysis regardless of how it affects you. And the analysis that we had at the time was, hey, you know, over a 10, 20-year timescale, esports is still going to grow. But we're at probably a local maximum valuation right now. That, like, there's a huge gap. And and this is actually just true for all assets, where when an asset is worth eight figures, there are far more buyers available than if an asset's worth nine figures. Right? And so this is, like, sort of, like, an obvious statement to people, but there are only so many billionaires in the world. And there's only so many players in the world who can like afford to be in these ecosystems. And so the real takeaway is that as a team, as Clutch was becoming worth, you know, from the eight, nine million when we started to like 10, 20, 30, $40 million, you have to ask yourself at any moment in time, and this is what most traders do, is like, hey, what is the future upside for this organization? Like how much more money do we need to put in to grow it sufficiently to be worth nine figures, as opposed to you know taking the win right now, I am super happy with our tenure at, at Clutch. I think we were very much justified in retrospect. Now, at the time, I think it was a little bit more opaque as to whether this was the right decision, but in, certainly in retrospect, taking the team and being like, "Hey, we've done our version of this correctly," and certainly if we kept running it for the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, it would have done just fine. But being able to then you know, capture the value in the moment and then making sure that we return value to our, to our investors and shareholders and ownership group, I think was a great outcome. That's not even a PR thing. Here's the flip side of this, right? If you think about how sports teams operate, sports teams are worth like about billions of dollars and they make about like 20 million in profit a year. <laughs> right, like that is yeah. not the, the type of return premium. profile. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's not the type of return profile people want to see in the modern era <laughs> from their investments, especially in the zero interest rate environment at the time. Uh, what's really funny about that is if you think about the team owners who are more legacy, their cost basis is so much lower, right? If you bought a team for $100 million and it's printing out $20 million of profit a year, suddenly that's a really great investment. Like your, pay, your payback period is five years, right? If you buy something for a billion dollars or $5 billion or $10 billion and it's doing 20 basis points, suddenly you have more questions to ask, right? And so I think that's something that I think about a lot and, and we're glad to have done it. And then on top of that, I think the, the HBSC guys have been great stewards of the team. Obviously, Dave, Dignitas is still around and kicking and doing some interesting stuff. Cool. Well, let's go ahead and zoom forward to the present day then. Uh, I want to get your pulse on what's going on in the current esports environment. So currently we see classic teams like TSM and CLG downsizing. We've seen layoffs from 100 Thieves. FaZe is getting delisted from the NASDAQ. Astralis as a public company has been crushed. And the list goes on in terms of the the struggles we see in esports, at least from, from the outside. Um, you also mentioned, the, uh, you know, earlier when we were talking that the era that you operated in with Clutch was probably one of the more sustainable eras of of esports. So I'm really curious to get your perspective on what went wrong between then and now to to, to kind of lead to all the ripple effects we're seeing today. And I'm really curious to know too whether you think that this was this fallout was destined to happen or was, did the industry just misplay its hand in some way? Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say things without providing the context of a multiplayer prisoner's dilemma, which is when costs go up for some people, it goes up for everyone. There's always, it's never the case that it's a solvable system. It's why bank runs happen. It's why a lot of things happen. The ecosystem of esports in particular in the early 2010s and in the late 2000s was that like their monetization flows were number one, sponsorships, number two, merchandise, number three and four, you know, maybe prize pools, tournament winnings, et cetera. Like we're talking about taking 20% of prize winnings from the teams in order to offset costs. Like that was the type of grassroots organization that folks like Jack Etienne, Victor, Gossin, Steve, and Arce were creating at the time. The hope and goal was that at some point, the amount of spend from sponsors would go from experimental spend to actual eyeball-based spend. And one thing that I think goes underreported is that, especially when we're evaluating the LCS, one of the biggest plugins for our model was the fact that they had this BAMTech deal, this BAMTech streaming deal that was supposed to guarantee the amount of revenue for the media rights. If you think about how sports works, sports typically are mostly media rights, followed by ticket sales, followed by F&B, and then it's like sponsorship, merchandise, and everything else, right? And so given that esports was lacking the first three, the majority of those categories, the fact that these franchise leagues were able to like pull up on the first two would mean that there's some really interesting stuff here. I don't blame players for this. I don't blame organizations even. I certainly think that people were doing what was the right thing in the moment they do. And this is, I think, actually totally in line with how the world works in a lot of ways, where zero interest rate environment, we have a lot of growth here. There's a way to capture this growth. If they had not moved in that direction, 
And they had instead tried to be more sustainable or do the right thing, quote unquote. Like, would they be even be around today? And the answer is probably not. A lot of people have come and gone. The best type of uh, CEOs of sports teams are all salespeople. They're all salespeople because the actual value accrual that happens in entertainment and traditional sports is the delta not in the monopolistic action, but rather in the ability to sell, sell sponsorships. And so you have a bunch of salespeople who are very good at their jobs doing what their job ought to be. And so as a result, like this happens over time, and then suddenly the macroeconomic climate changes. As it changes, it's no longer the case that there's free money out there. It's no longer the case that places like YouTube or Twitch or Azubu at the time or some of these other guys are providing uh, competition for media right deals. Next thing you know, the revenues just aren't there. Now, here is the one fault I do see. One fault I do see is that oftentimes when you see this happen, you should constrict immediately, right? If anything, people weren't quick enough to constrict their organizations and then bring themselves in line with what their economic numbers were at the time. That did happen. However, on the flip side, it's not that it was destined to happen. It's that in, in the multiversal world that we live in, this is the outcome when you have the environment we do now. The, the, the other thing I've heard people uh, preach about is that they thought that people would acquire users into esports. I, I never believed this. I don't know if the best operators I knew believe this. The idea that the esports uh, like pie would grow tremendously, that just doesn't happen in entertainment ecosystems. Typically speaking, the best way to acquire a 35-year-old into your entertainment vehicle is to wait for the 18-year-old who you have to turn 35, right? Like it's, it's sort of one of those like really ironic things where you really need to wait for everyone to age up. And so if you're expecting to convince 40-year-olds to start watching League of Legends or Overwatch in 2018, that probably was never going to happen. And you really needed it to be a generational thing. And certainly if it wasn't going to be ready generationally, then totally could happen. Yeah, that's a really interesting answer. I've, I've always kind of viewed it simil similarly where it was a question of the, the whole industry sort of has to move together in a sense. And so if, if you start to see players um, start to kind of ramp up their cost in order to better compete, it's really hard to stay in the game if you don't do that as well. Um, Mm -hmm. But at the same time, like either the entire industry has to move in that direction or the entire industry has to be more sustainability first in their business model earlier on. And the industry went in the other direction and, you know, kind of compounded the problems through like the fundraising at high valuations that 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 took place on some of those expectations, too. And it just became a much thornier um, problem to, to unwind I guess. Um, uh, for sure. But that's why it's a multiplayer prisoner's dilemma. Like, sure, is there a world in which everyone's content with, like in the original esports ecosystem world, uh, everyone was paying themselves 50 grand, like both the players and organizations. We were splitting homes in Las Vegas. Yeah. And our after parties were in abandoned barns about 10 kilometers away from Yangshiping for after DreamHack, right? That was also not a great ecosystem for a sustainable market, right? That was paycheck to paycheck. There were often times where we were eating baked beans, right? We were taking on a lot of different jobs. And so in a lot of ways, uh, the quote-unquote professionalization or the franchising of the ecosystem allowed people to have careers in the space that we didn't think was possible prior. Now, the difference between here and, let's say, China or Korea is that China and Korea, they have government action in order to enforce a type of monopolistic opportunity for them. We've seen what happened to Activision Blizzard when they tried to attempt that. 
they got sued. And that's perfectly reasonable. I think it's, I think one of the harder things for fans to have in mind, and I think this is true for fans and people in the space, is you can both not like the outcome and understand how it came to be. And I think that's exactly where the space is right now, which is if you had to choose between trying to live paycheck to paycheck and uh, hope that the space would like grow 5% a year and outpace inflation and we'd all just be sleeping on couches. Or there's a chance that, hey, if we can inject capital into this, we can get to a point of sustainability quicker. I totally see why people, myself included, chose the latter. And then when it didn't work out for a lot of people, that happened. Hmm. So what's the path out from here? How does how do you think esports orgs and the industry at large will look differently in a few years? Or is it going to go back to being pure esports companies? Are we going to see more of like the 100 Thieves model where they're branching out into all sorts of different things to have more revenue upside? Where do you think this is going next? Yeah, esports is in a really interesting space. Part of which is that you know publishers capture most of the value of the ecosystem. That's yeah. a fact, right? Like they capture all the money of it and then they distribute what they want to distribute. I'd imagine actually with the changes to ATT, like esports and the retention opportunities that esports provide becomes more and more valuable over time. And that as eyeballs become more scarce, that esports and the ability to like focus things still is valuable. I'm still net net bullish on esports uh, in the more traditional sense. Streaming is its own beast. It'll do fine, just like all content creator ecosystems will. Although fine is relative to the expectation you have in mind. Uh, it's it's interesting because, for example, if you were to have a sitcom star today, right? The sitcom star is not Jennifer Aniston anymore. They're not going to have a lifetime of income from syndication from Seinfeld or Friends anymore, right? And so our expectation of what a sitcom star or celebrity's income streams have completely changed. Similarly, the streamer income or the content creator or influencer income streams are changing constantly. And they're not as sustainable as people think they are. There's a lot more variance, a lot more up and down in their space. We'll see this up and down also on the team side. There are always going to be esports teams. There are always going to be people coming together and doing some really fun bootstrap things. There's going to be a class of people who are going to put more money behind it and create more interesting things. Now, that doesn't, that just means like, is the timing right? And when will the timing be right? Uh, it's one of the fun things. I think we've talked about this before where if you look at the NBA, pre Magic and Larry, Goodness gracious, the NBA did not look sustainable whatsoever. If you look at the NFL in the 60s and 70s, it looked like it was going to fail too. And in fact, it did fail in some ways, in a lot of ways here and there. There are ways and paths forward. And to an observer five, 10 years from now, it'll look obvious in retrospect. But what's really fun, and this is why I love stuff like 100 Thieves, is I don't know if that's the right answer to do to lean into merchandise drops or to lean into making games. I do know that John Robinson's a solid executive and he's a solid founder-level guy. And so I'm sure he'll figure out his own pathway forward, right? But that's, I think, the bet we're making, generally speaking, in esports. Yeah, and I guess there doesn't have to be one answer. Different companies will find find their own paths, and even different games will probably find their own ways to, to operate, too. Um, last question before we uh, move on to talk about the UGC side of things. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm curious, I mean, you mentioned that the publishers are kind of the biggest winners in this and esports, and it makes sense. They own the games. They set the rules. I mean, we've also seen, um, you know, Activision Blizzard as an example. Um, kind of think about esports maybe more as a revenue driver than just an engagement driver for the game, and as such, has been you know much more aggressive in its terms and has been made made it harder for 
other parts of the value chain teams, et cetera, to really succeed um, profitably in its sports. How important is it for the publishers to reset the playing field and make it more prosperous for everyone else for esports to have a successful long-term runway? I mean, in a hypothetical world, it'd be great. I, I think a lot about incentives. I just like, don't see why a game publisher or studio would be incentivized to do so. And that might mean or both poorly for esports, but let's put it this way. In the commissioner of the NBA is beholden to the team owners. That's his job. His job is to make sure team owners accrue value and accomplish their goals. Everything else that the league office does is in service of that. Everything else is. Activision Blizzard and perhaps Microsoft, if that merger ever happens, is beholden to their shareholders and the fiduciary obligation to generate revenue. If at some point someone comes up with an interesting model in which the retention value of esports outstrips the cost of esports, then we'll see it applied. If that doesn't happen, then suddenly there is no need for them to pay that forward. And like one of the things I always reject, and I reject this in part because I'm a huge believer in esports, is the idea of what is the potential reality versus what our actual reality is and assigning probabilities to like how that potential reality can become a thing. In mm-hmm. an ideal, ideal world, we'd have collective bargaining on the player side such that they themselves have healthcare, future rights, access to education, access to future upside. We'd have cost-effective salaries that are split between people's 401ks as well as, as, well as paying players. We'd have organizations that are sustainable and a publisher that's incentivized to continue to fund and provide more economics to these people. How likely are any of those bits? And the answer is very low for each and yeah. single one, right? <laughs> for, the, what's, for the most part, it's actually unclear that players should, should actually ever unionize, right? It's unclear that they should ever collectively bargain. Uh, it's, it's argued because we have it in other sports that they should, but you know, it's unclear. Like if you are the best player in the world at that moment in time, you like LeBron James has always has probably given up around a billion dollars of value over his 20 year career in terms of like unearned income as a function of value that was then then captured by your mid-level exception folks in the league. That's just how this all works, right? That's totally fine. But I do think that one thing I would push on people who are evaluating the space or people who are thinking about how this grows, not to be pessimistic, not to be optimistic, but to be realistic about, hey, what are the different inputs? How will they evolve? And then how, like, will there ever be a game or org that's incentivized to do this for you? If the answer is yes, then hell yeah. But if the answer is you think you, you just are a better operator than people before you, and that's your only edge, there's a lot of hurt coming down the pipeline for yeah. you. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been really interesting, but we really should um, switch gears um, and switch from esports to user-generated content, which is where you naturally spend a lot of time today. And to start, especially for the uninitiated, I think the, the best place to begin is just for you to tell us a bit more about Infinite Canvas. What's the, what's yeah. the mission? What are you working on? Yeah, so Infinite Canvas, we've been around since 21. Uh, we are a user-generated gaming studio publisher. We operate mostly on platforms like Roblox and Fortnite Creative and, and the like. Effectively, the entire thesis is, hey, the coolest games that we played growing up and the coolest games that we see evolve are not AAA games. That In fact, they are 
interesting modifications or interesting user-generated game modes created from the minds of people who are part of a larger zeitgeist on platforms like historically Warcraft 3 map editor or more recently Dota 2 map editor where we got Dota auto chess and TFT and whatnot. And so to that extent, our entire thesis is just to get exposure to that and then to be part of that community. And so we've had a lot of success, fortunately, on platforms like Roblox, doing a lot of interesting different games from like dunking games, everything else. But then also learning a lot about new platforms and new user-generated ecosystems and trying to provide guidance to folks on how to work through that. Yeah, so I'm curious, how does the the business work? Like, how do you make money? Like, how does all of that work in a bit more detail if you're willing to share? Of course, yeah. So it differs platform to platform. And I think this is interesting in all types of gaming. Uh, for those of you who don't know, hyper-casual gaming historically, and by historically, I mean like pre-2020, um, made a lot of its money on advertising, right? Like that's how they made their loops. There was no in-app purchasing there, it was just advertising. And so a platform like UEFN, um, the new Unreal Engine Fortnite Creative 2.0 mode, that is a pure impression and playtime-based monetization scheme. The more people play the game, the more Fortnite is carving out to pay you out. The flip side is that almost all the money, like 99% of the money we make from our Roblox games are in-app purchases. Your battle passes, your hedonic loops, your people playing the game and wanting a cool hat. That is the free-to-play model as applied to Roblox is how we make most of our money there. The third vehicle, which is probably always going to be a third or a distant third or a distant fourth vehicle, is sponsorships, right? And so what I mean by that is branded engagements with specific people who want exposure to our games and our audiences. You always have a little bit of that in the background, but that's like a very minimal, like sub 5% portion of our revenue streams. Okay, got it. And so I guess just to, to clarify, um, like you as a company foot the cost for, for all of the building that takes place for the most part, maybe some exceptions, but then all the revenue comes from however, all, all the, the ways you just said, different platforms have their different methods. But is that, that Yeah, right? yeah. Our, our two main lines of game acquisition are one, creation itself, the studio part of the business where we spend time, usually around two weeks at a time, making a new game mode or taking a game mode and test A-B testing in different uh, scenarios, different uh, typing, and then also acquisition of games. So we spent a bunch of time. We built a model. My mm-hmm. background is sabermetrics and data science. We have a data science lead now, so I don't even touch it anymore. He's so much better than me. Uh, but we would go reach out to uh, people and be like, hey, we think your game is awesome. We think we can help. We can help with live ops. We can help with like continual growth. We can help with user acquisition, monetization, retention and then acquire the game. Either 80% of the game or 20% of the game, some percentage of the game. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't actually know that that last part that you've been um, acquiring other games. How has that been going? What have you learned from, from doing that in this new world of UGC platforms? Yeah, my, my biggest insight that I tell people is you should never do 50-50. That is something that I think is true for all JVs. You should really make sure you know who's doing the development. And so... If, you're, if we're doing a 10 to 20% deal where we're helping out with user acquisition or some of the loops, it's very clear that you're doing the development and we're, we have a long list of creators we've been working with who are awesome and they're making really cool games and things that we'd never even consider making for their own audiences. And on the flip side, we actually have stuff on, on the other side, which is like people who've made really compelling experiences that they've done some really awesome stuff. So we did a game called Carnival Tycoon. And we expanded out the game and we run it every summer and we run events and, and do sort of the unsexy things that generate revenue, but that a game developer who's more of a creative doesn't want to touch. And so 
we do basically the gamut between the two, which has been a lot of fun. Cool. Um, well, I know um, up until this point, Infinite Canvas has largely been building on Roblox so far. But now that um, the Unreal Editor for Fortnite is live, I'd love to hear your impressions because obviously this has been all the news. We've heard a lot of noise, but as someone who's um, been on the front lines and I'm sure been pretty close to the Epic team, I'm curious to get your 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 early thoughts. Yeah, I mean, we've been fortunate. We've actually been making Fortnite creative maps since 2021, and so we've uh, you know we've we've made maps throughout with a variety of partners in the ecosystem. And so it used to be that coding was you would like drop a NPC from a certain height, and depending on what button it hit, that's how you create RNG. That's how you create randomness. It's nice to have a programming language. It's still in development. I think that's something that's really important to say. So for example, you're right. not going to see persistence yet. You're not going to see the type of progression loops that we as a company are known for in these games quite yet. Uh, we're still working on that. We're still doing it. But we've been able to import some really awesome assets. Uh, we have an entire asset team. And so that we've been putting stuff in. We've been making it look really interesting. We haven't gotten our early results yet. Um, the checks are still coming out as to the first month cohort of the stuff. Where I think we're recording on the 12th or 13th. That's hopefully going to come out by the end of the month. So we'll have a better idea of what it's like. But it's certainly a step in a very interesting and compelling direction. There, the question I think will become how the execution looks like for us. Both from the platform, but also from us ourselves. Verse, by the way, is a super interesting language. And I actually don't think it's, there's anything in the issue of Verse. It's just a question of like, hey, does it fit your skill set? Does it fit someone else's skill set? One thing that we tell people all the time, and this is true for us as well, is that we can't let our success or our experience in other platforms cloud our judgment about a new platform. Unreal, Fortnite Creative 2.0 will be very different than even FNC 1. It's going to be very different from Roblox. It's very different from mobile. There are learnings to be had, but it's going to take some time to on-ramp and make sure we find a really interesting game. Uh, I, early in my career, had a chance to work on early mobile. And the games we worked on back then were games like Sword and Sorcery, right? Which was like a 90-minute RPG loop, right? Yeah. Not really mobile-friendly in retrospect. But it won Game of the Year, like Mobile Game of the Year at the time, right? And so yeah. it's very clear that over time, developers learn better tools and tools. And now you have these like really mobile exclusive game loops that make a far more sense than the stuff that we had back in the early 2010s. And that's yeah. what we'll see in these ecosystems as well. Yeah, Infinity Blade was that way too. I think it probably won game of the year and whatever whatever year that was too for mobile. It was dope. I guess it would use all my battery life in about 20 minutes. Though. Yep. <laughs> on my yep. Samsung Galaxy Sam. That uh, was so much fun though. Um, well, I'm curious... Um, to get your impressions on if you are to lean more into um, the Unreal Creator Mode for Fortnite, um, any more specifics on what you're looking for? Is it more, are you looking for more power, creativity, creativity in certain ways? Are you looking just for more evidence that the monetization system um, is effective for you? Like, what are like the main milestones or or updates that you're kind of betting on? Yeah. So, I mean, for us, what we do for the most part is, one, we're, we're all in on, on on Unreal Fortnite and we have been for a while. It's it's just a good platform. And it's a good platform because it has users, right? Like one of the, one of the, yeah. the, the a priori constraints about user-generated <laughs> ecosystems is that you have to have people making stuff and consuming things. And as a game developer, 
and, and like Studio Publisher in particular, we have a hard time developing for systems that don't exist, right? So if your entire ecosystem doesn't exist on paper, it's going to be really hard for us to bring it into the real world or to create things that are, are interesting there if no one plays it. Some people might be able to, and I, I give them all the credit in the world. It's just not us. Like we're, we need an audience. <laughs> we, want to, we want to sing to a room, as they say. Uh, that is number one. Fortnite has that. Holy moly, do they have users. They're like one of the few places that has users to the scale that Roblox has users. It's like Fortnite, it's Roblox, it's Minecraft, and GTA Online basically are the four main platforms that have users right now. Everything else yeah. is sort of like gravy, honestly. Like, if demonetization is great, it'll mean that we'll spend more focus and more focus on it. If if you see some better, um, de- better engine work in the game that allows you to do more engine-based things, then we'll do more engine-based things. Well, one thing similar to our esports analysis, which is like, don't don't wish for what the future is. Like, operate in the present. It's like very much. Uh, what we feel about in UGC platforms. We're like, hey, if there's no persistence, there's a ton of ways to introduce persistent-like mechanics. So we've been working on some stuff where we do old-school Metroid NES-type things where you have a 16-letter code that you can type in at the beginning of the map. And in doing so, you can like load out your your asset or your guns or your like progression thus far, right? These are These are old tricks rehashed to the present day. And that's been a ton of fun. But obviously, that'd be much easier once we have a data store. And that's coming, from what I understand. Yeah. Well, I want to play this forward a little bit and get your thoughts on maybe longer term where this is going. So, I mean, you mentioned the number one advantage of the Fortnite creative mode is just the tens of millions of players <laughs> that play Fortnite, 100%. which which makes a ton of sense. Um, and uh, I know many UGC companies, that's also, on the flip side, the largest challenge that they face. It's the cold start problem of, well, how do you get creators if there aren't users? And how do you get users if there aren't people building for you? Um, mm-hmm. And so I'm, I'm curious to hear your take on, obviously, what, what Fortnite's doing right now makes a lot of sense, makes them an obvious contender for the long run. But what do you think about all of the smaller up-and-coming players do you think they're all going to face tremendous challenges or do you think there are a handful um if you want to name names that'd be cool if not that's fine uh, but um that you think could actually solve this cold start problem in interesting ways yeah i think you nailed it on the head right there it is certainly the case that user generate doesn't work if you don't have users <laughs> right like it's, yep. it's just you, you gotta solve that somehow What's really fun, and I think we've talked about this a bunch, Aaron, is that because of the way the ATT changes have happened, it's no longer a money problem. It's no longer throwing enough money on Instagram or Facebook or or similar platforms to get users to the door to start off this ecosystem. There has to be another trick. There has to be another thing. To to that point, the vast majority of these platforms are going to fail. Uh, I talk to new UGC platforms every day. And I'm always excited to talk to them. I'm always excited because there's like something interesting new that they're trying to apply for. One commonality I've seen is that the vast majority of them aren't focused on solving this problem. There's really? a huge error in mental model when if you think if I build it, they'll come. Because that's just not going to happen. Like yeah. you're going to have to do something really interesting, really novel, really cool. Some people have tried doing hiring musicians or some other people to try to increase their audience size. I don't think that's worked so far. 
there's some really interesting stuff around like Rec Room and how they've started on mobile as a mobile-focused one. And we'll see how they're going to transition to supporting Unity. There's some entire ecosystems that are have just like large audiences, right? Like it's fun to watch, for example, if Pokemon were to ever launch a UGC platform or to acquire the UGC assets in, it's going to do super well. Marvel Snap benefited a ton from the Marvel IP in terms of like how getting over their cold start problem. Our, our guess is that the problem will be solved in ways that we don't know that we don't know about quite yet is the most likely solution. But the stuff that we have seen that are interesting is like if you make an interesting game, if you already have an interesting platform, if you have interesting IP already on platform, if you have users already, that's a great place to start. One thing I will say is that we talk a lot about internally what we call the creator-consumer conundrum, where even with the ratios as they are, there it used to be like way back, you know, a thousand years ago, the creator-consumer ratio was one-to-one because no one knew how to read. So if you knew how to read, you knew how to write, and you were like the only people writing to each other. And then over time, with the printing press, the number of writers relative to the number of readers changed, right? And so now suddenly, there are a lot more readers than there were um, cons- um, creators. And so the ratio is like one to 100. With the advent of the internet, it scaled up to being like one to a billion at some point, right? Like it was just like the number of people who are making things relative to people is like one to a million. And as we move more into user-generated gaming and user-generated content in general, that's starting to collapse again. It's especially with Gen Z, it's no longer the one creator to a million consumers. It is now far more likely to be one to 10,000. But by the way, 10,000 is still a large freaking number, right? And so yeah. that will probably mean that if you want to have an interesting throughput of games, you need about 200,000 DAU. <laughs> and so how to get a 200,000 DAU is an incredibly hard problem. One in which uh, we've been fortunate enough to you know, jumpstart by bringing on games, acquiring games, and seeding communities. Uh, I don't know how else you would do it, but I recommend... To, to actually think about the problem. That, I think, is probably the biggest problem we're trying to solve. There's some really interesting DevRel people who have some solutions. I think they're really cool. But I certainly think it's some combination of creating games, brands, and then jumpstarting in other ways. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, last thing I want to get your, your thought on here is your, your pulse on if there is more competition in UGC, how does the industry or the economics of the industry change? Because... You know, if we look over the past few years, really Roblox has been the only platform like it. Um, and there's been, uh, of course, modding for years and um, people creating around the edges for a very long time. Um, but in terms of a like a UGC specific platform, um, Roblox has been in a world of its own for a very long time. And if you look now, it now has like an R&D run rate of a billion dollars a year, which is so hard for anyone (laughs) to ever have like a chance to really match that. And so now we see, of course, Epic um, launching their own system, which is a work in progress, but, you know, they have a bunch of talent that's working to improve it over time. So, Mm -hmm. um, and you never know when other a third um, could pop up too, I, I suppose. But even just from going going from one to two, do you think that the emergence of competition will have any impact on the economics of this industry as a whole? Like, does it get more expensive to attract the best creators? Does it get? Do we have to now start seeing like user acquisition battles? Like, what what do you think matters or doesn't here? 
man, I, I feel like the throughput is what we want versus what we hope versus what we think is going to happen. Uh, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it's an interesting question. It's a super interesting question because the answer is multifaceted. On one hand, we should step back and ask, what is the actual cost of supporting these servers? What's the actual cost like in terms of overhead, right? Uh, it's unclear to me that app, it does cost Apple 30% of all IAPs in order to run their app store. And so, but if that's true, or if, but like it costs them something, it's non-zero, right? It's, there's, a, there's a value added by Apple. I think that's the same question that Unreal is going to face with FNC. It's the same question that the, the folks over at Roblox are facing constantly. What is that right balance and how much of your margin can you collapse when you have competition? There's a, oh, excuse me, there's a world in which Google Play Store didn't exist, at which point I'd imagine Apple's cut might be 75, 80%, <laughs> right? But because the Play Store existed, it created enough competition such that we can have an interesting, robust ecosystem that we have today. Is 30% too high? We'll see how that plays out in the courts. But I certainly think that is the pressure we're seeing right now. Where we won't see pressure is we won't see pressure from platforms that have zero cuts or 10% cuts, but no users. Because zero, like 90% of zero is still zero, right? And so one of the interesting things is that the only type of real price competition you can see only exists if there are large enough competitors to actually question the player base or provide different alternatives. We don't see that here. One world that's possible is that every UGC platform segments per audience where there's like going to be like a Chinese UGC platform that's like the, um, the jour of China. And then there's one for the US. And there's one for 13 to 18-year-olds. There's one for 19 to 24-year-olds. And one for 25 to 29-year-olds. If that segmentation happens fully, we may see no price improvement across this ecosystem. It might just be that there is no competition because everyone's building for different people. Hmm. In the interim, it might also be that they overlap a lot. In an idealized world, we'd see some really strong, more than duopoly, like massive number of players with a large number of ecosystems coming up. And then a studio publisher like myself is king in that world. That'd be great. I would love for that to happen. But certainly, it's, it, it takes a long time to build up these ecosystems. There are costs associated with it. Costs that aren't being um, held down by any individual person. And so therefore, the question is like, what do those cuts look like? What does it look like? And who are those platforms? I will say as like an interesting hint as to what the next thing is that I've been thinking about is, I would say we should expand our definition. It won't just be a games platform. It will be more than that. And so I think it's really interesting to think about what that expansion looks like and who has users. It might be a... I hate the word metaverse in some ways because people have used it to into the ground just like esports and doesn't mean anything anymore. But there is an entire cohort of people who follow Taylor Swift around. That is an interesting ecosystem. There's definitely user-generated content in the Taylorverse or the Swiftverse. I actually don't know <laughs> what they use, right? How does that apply? Like, what is Taylor Swift's cut to that? Taylor Swift's cut to that might be 100%. It's all fan art, right? Like it's fan music. It's all that kind of stuff. Like what does that world look like? As it turns out, we don't know yet. And I think that's going to be the fun stuff that, that develops over the next few years. That's fascinating. We got to shift over to our last um, topic for the day, but um, I'm excited to continue this conversation <laughs> in the future as we as we learn more and the industry continues to, um, to, uh, to unfold. It's going to be really exciting. Um, to see where this goes and to see where Infinite Canvas and you 
you operate within the space too and where where you go as well. But let's go ahead and and shift gears and talk about um, venture capital, which of course, on top of your work as a founder, you're also a venture partner at Bitcraft. And to start, could you just tell us a bit about how that came to be? Why are you also an investor while running a company? How do you manage that? <laughs> how, like, just just tell us how this is done. Yeah, yeah. So uh, first, want to give a lot of plaudits and uh, thanks to the people who taught me about venture. Uh, I was fortunate enough in 2011 to work for a couple of guys, David Hornig and Howard Hottenbaum, over at then August Capital, they're now Lobby Capital. Some of the best investors of their generation. Howard was the initial investor in Skype. David did a lot of stuff inclusive of Splunk and StumbleUpon and stuff like that. They taught me a lot about the heuristics that I wanted to know. And one of the things that I took away from their conversations was, wow, they're so much cooler than me. That they know so much more <laughs> at that moment in time and still to this day. And after the sale of Clutch, I had you know, finished out my earnout. I was working on some nonprofit work, uh, helping out folks during um, during the pandemic. And then uh, I, I'd known Malta, Bart, Scott Rupp, and Jens Hilgers from Bitcraft for years. I talked a lot about deals. They asked me to come on board and help them out with, with some of their deal flow and understanding there. I was reticent at first, in part because I just thought there are so many better, interesting thinkers out there who add real interesting value to companies. Um, and they said, hey, that's fine. Come on as a venture partner. You can still be an operator. You can still do some interesting stuff. And so that's uh, they gave me such a great offer in terms of, hey, it's like you can come in, do as much as for little as you want, help us out, and really do- dove into it. And it was a ton of fun. And I really enjoyed working with those guys. Um, in particular, I want to shout out both Malta and Scott because I think they're some of the best board members in the world when it comes to gaming. And obviously, I'm a little biased here, but... They want to say that they're they're so great to work with because they always ask you if the world is actually round, right? Which I think is does does the sun really revolve around the Earth, right? Like asking that <laughs> question is so interesting, and so uh, it's been a ton of fun looking at all the deals in the world out there. Well, great! Thanks for sharing uh, your your background there, uh, and I know you are very reflective about the state of venture capital and gaming as well. And just for some 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 context and background on what's changed recently. Um, We've, of course, seen the venture industry change pretty dramatically over the past few years. For one, new major players dedicated to gaming, like Bitcraft, have emerged onto the scene. Second, we've seen more traditional VCs like Andreessen Horowitz or Lightspeed. They've ramped up their gaming focus uh, with major funds. Third, we've, of course, seen as the game industry has succeeded, there's more people that are interested in serving as angel investors or, you know, looking to invest across the industry in various ways. And then, you know, lastly, in the process of all of those factors, the money dedicated to new gaming and adjacent companies has grown pretty tremendously over the years. And even if we just compare from 2020, in 2020, the industry saw $5.9 billion in private investments. And in 2021 and 2022, it grew to over $10 billion. And so obviously, this growth comes with opportunity. Um, and some of the the ripple effects of of all of this are positive, but maybe on the flip side too, it is worth discussing um, areas in which the industry has changed, that that we see some cracks in the foundation or have comments on maybe how things can be improved or leveled up from here. And so um, 
So I, I guess I'd just like to hand it to you to maybe give a caveat about where you're coming from. Why do you want to discuss venture and where is your your head at in, in this conversation before we dive deeper? Yeah, I mean, we should probably have a quick disclaimer at the beginning, which is like, Aaron, you and I both have a good deal of bias, right? I'm a venture partner. I love venture. Navik has a a few right, venture clients. clients. Yeah, uh, we're also both part of the games industry. We're also both trained in the investing industry, uh, and that certainly doesn't change the fact that we're we're both lifelong gamers and that um, we're very incredibly lucky to be in the seats we are. And like, candidly, we got to do video games. That's freaking awesome, right? Like, yep. I, I, it's like, it's important to say, like, when you review science fiction, that like, hey, I like science fiction, right? Or I don't like science fiction. That's like an important thing to say. And I think it's important to say what we're thinking about for venture capital as applies to gaming is offering up both constructive criticism, but also questions as to what the world looks like. <laughs> Let's take a step back and talk about venture as a whole. Venture in the early 2000s seemed dead. Right, there was a lot of really cool things that happened in the 80s and 90s with like Sun, Symantec, Microsoft, Yahoo's of the world. But by the time that after the dot com bust, didn't really seem as though venture had any place to do anything anymore. <laughs> Certainly wrong. Venture then became one of the biggest asset classes of the last 20, 30 years, and it's been doing really well since. But at the time, venture capitalists were generally generalists. They were working on a lot of different things. And so as venture became more and more sophisticated and became a better and better asset class, we had more specialization. I credit Jens and the folks at Bitcraft a ton for being some of the first players to do gaming-specific investments. It makes sense that as they were more successful, that they brought on folks like Adresen and Lightspeed of the people of the world to like deploy more capital against it. That's awesome. The... Specific format of it, though, is the question here, which is, hey, like, when you deploy this capital, are you seeing venture-style returns? The answer is, for the most part, we don't know. Uh, David Hornig used to say, it takes about 10 years to find out if you're lucky in venture, and about 20, another 10 years to find out if you're good. And so one of the fun things is that if the first venture firms that deploy capital against esports or gaming or video games in general really started happening in a segmented way in 2016, 2017, it's hard to judge. Now, we're fortunate that there are people like Nabil Hyatt over at Spark and others who are from the games industry and have made bets in gaming prior, but they were more generalists who are deploying against these spaces. And so that, I think, is a combination of, hey, it's both super early to judge as to whether or not what's happening in gaming venture but also late enough to know, hey, what are some interesting things and sight lines and guidelines that we're starting to see? Yeah, I think that's that's a great uh, disclaimer and kind of setting the scene. I guess, you know, somewhere to start. Obviously, we've seen an explosion of interest in venture um, from all of these, these different players, and it's led to a pretty massive increase in funding. Um, but, you know, if we look at the past decade or so of what the exits have been and where they've come from. Um, and, and Navik Digest recently, um, Fozzy put together some good data. There's only about 20 or so $400 million plus exits in gaming in the past decade. And I think 16 of them exited for uh, over a billion dollars. And you can probably 
you know, tack a couple more around the edges for what you could consider hybrids. Like I know you said you're like a fan of Duolingo uh, as an example. Um, but I, I'm curious, just like as a simple question now, w- with the pretty tremendous increase of funding that we've seen, is there too much money chasing too few deals at this point? What do you think? Definitionally, and this has been true for the history of the world, Definitionally, there is always going to be too much money chasing too few companies because creating companies is freaking hard. Uh, Namdi uh, over at uh, Namdi over at Lightspeed has a great chart that he talks about where he's like, "Hey, if you look at the amount of demand for deals relative to the amount of funding for deals, it's always the case that we never have enough startups for these things, and that's been the case for decade plus. Why is that? Well, it's because." We just have to become more entrepreneurial. It's because there is never enough companies and people working on interesting things. And that's just true. It's really hard. Like creating a startup is a lot of headache. And there's always going to be an easier path to deploy capital historically than there has been otherwise. There are other macro effects to this as well, right? There's interest rates were at all time low for about a decade. We're only now recently cresting upon the idea of like interest rates being really high. What does a zero interest rate environment cause? Well, it means that there are things that you can take different risk profiles and premiums in order to do. If you're thinking about the last 20 years, it really does, like when you think about when venture is considered bad versus good, it typically correlates with where interest rates are. And so uh, it's it's actually really funny to think about like, hey, like um, when you think about like the mid-1980s, Venture at the time, I mean, interest rates at the time were like so much higher. So, like, the idea of 5% interest rates was considered really high or really low for the mid 1980s. And so, it made more sense to deploy into venture capital versus otherwise. Same thing with the, the mid 1990s. We were seeing like that dip down, early 2000s that dipped down, 2010s that dipped down, early 2020s that dipped down. Clearly, we're at like 5% now. So, maybe not so great at this moment in time. But uh, that's just the reality of the world, which is, hey, it's hard to make companies. There are a lot of people with money. They want to have exposure to people making really cool new stuff and are disruptive and deeply. And how do you manage those two things? Typically speaking, when there's more money than there is demand for than supply of companies, that means that the valuations of the companies go up. When there are more companies than there is supply of money, then the valuations come down. That, I think, is the dynamic that we're starting to see. Yeah, that makes sense. And honestly, I mean, I think the the argument of, you know, there's always opportunity, there's always some problem to solve for, et cetera. I think that that argument works best more from like the generalist point of view, where you have more adaptability and flexibility and where you can turn. And even more recently, we've seen like the Founders Fund, for example, mm-hmm. cut its fund size in half. So if anything, some of the like smarter investors out there are actually they have slowed down. <laughs> their their pace of investing almost at a time we're in the games industry um it's been the opposite and so i'm curious to see what the the ripple effects of that will be and i'm curious if you have any thoughts as we played this cycle out over the next 2 3 years of course you know we acknowledge that these cycles always have existed you even sent me a message beforehand talking about the video game crash of 1983 which i got into a rabbit hole there so of course, this has been around for at least 40 years in the games industry, but I'm curious what you think about how this could play out over the next 
two or three years or this this venture cycle. Yeah, so that is a great... There's so much to unpack there. So let's start from the beginning. So first and foremost, venture cycles have to be a decade, right? So in some senses, what we're seeing right now is like deployment cycle, the early stages of deployment cycle, and then we'll see the outcomes of what happened in a few years' time. 2021 in particular was a great end of a cycle in the sense that deployments that happened in the early 2010s when I started my career were coming to a close, right? Like a company like Splunk IPOs. Splunk IPOs after being founded in 2008, 2007, maybe 2005, but they finally IPO sometime in the, in, you know, in, in 2021 or 2020 or thereabouts, right? Super interesting cycle. And if you were to say, given that they're, you know, worth like, they make like three to $4 billion in revenue, like clearly a real company at this point, but it took like 10 years to get there. The best way to judge venture funds historically, like the best measure of success is less who the founders are, less who the fund managers are, less who the GPs or LPs are. And it's almost always vintage. Vintage is the number one thing where it's like, hey, yeah. what year did you deploy your capital? And I think this comes into play specifically with the video game crash in 83, how we think about esports, but also how we think about deployments now. In a zero interest rate environment, if you're deploying cash, you just need to beat risk-adjusted the rate of inflation, right? That is a lot to unpack, but to dive deeper, basically, if you think something, let's say, has 50% chance of succeeding, it needs to succeed as often in order such that the entire IRR of your fund beats out the risk premium you're taking on it. That's a pretty straightforward way to describe it. If you deployed into video games in 1982, when video games were making some billions of dollars, assuming that you would get like 5% chance of having, or 50% chance of having capturing some percentage of that market, you'd be very disappointed in 1983 when video games crashed to like $90 million in revenue, right? That is not the world we live in today. Right now, what we end up seeing is instead that as companies build, they have pathways to revenue, pathways to acquisition. For a number of years in gaming, from about 17 to 21, that was the hyper-casual mid-core loop, which is, hey, we actually have the ability to use acquire users really simply. This is a growth question, and that's venture-backable for sure. It's put some money in, it'll grow larger, we'll print money. That makes a lot of sense. Will that be the case in 23 moving on? We don't know. The answer is almost certainly it's going to be different than it was previously. But that, I think, is the like table state setting of it all. Yeah, and I think it's interesting too, just to recognize that about as soon as you start to criticize the venture industry, or honestly, any corner of like investing for being, um, you know, things are too expensive, it's time to slow down, evaluations are falling, what went wrong? As soon as you like start to ask those questions, you're probably looking at a better vintage <laughs> right in front of you anyways. And so kind of the conversation after the fact almost like isn't, super valuable, except in the sense of like getting smarter to recognize it um, the the next time around in the cycle. But I am curious too, just as gaming has gone mainstream, more funds car- are carving out capital for the industry, the type of venture capitalists who invest in games has also mm-hmm. evolved. And I'd love to get your, your perspective on the changing landscape of the types and even ages of investors and whether that's net positive, net negative, Etc. 
Yeah, I, I've had some conversation with my friends and colleagues in the venture space over the last uh, couple of months about this, which is, you know, if you were an investor in the early 2000s to the mid 2000s, consumer investor investing was awesome. But the thing that's done super well the last 10 years is growth investing, right? And so you see a lot of really exceptional growth people who have a lot of success, exceptional things they can point to and say, hey, I did this and this netted me this big return, right? We don't see that as much in the consumer gaming side because there hasn't been that many deals that come out. And so the question becomes, if you don't have examples of that, who become the senior partners who become GPs in a 10-year time span? I certainly think that we have a dearth of people in that middle cohort, right? One of the things that uh, the folks who I would say at this point would be like, you know, late 30s to early 40s who would have the like 10 to 20 years experience. Historically, a lot of people who are in the venture side have spent a few years as operators, then investors, then becoming partners and, and then providing value to companies that way. As we become more specialized and as we become more of an industry that attracts people of different age brackets and different thought brackets, what does that type of investor look like? It's really interesting because it looks far more, it both it looks far more diverse in terms of experience background and also far more opaque in terms of like the value add here and there. Like one of the cooler things that I think about is just, hey, like as a founder, who do I want to take money from? And do I want to take money from me? If I can add value, then hell yeah. And if not, then hell no, right? And I think that is something that comes up over and over again in this analysis, which is if there are some awesome investors out there, uh, I think like uh, Dylan um, Glendinging, who's one, uh, is over at Everblue is a great example of someone who's uh, such an amazing board member. And he's nowhere near as tenured or experienced as Malta or Scott from Bitcraft, right? But he, he just like understands that game and understands how to add value. And he does a lot of like work. And you'd be foolish not to have him on your board. I think Leah Zhang over at Makers is another example of someone who works really hard and produces a lot of really cool value for her portfolio companies. Sean Sean at Lightspeed, another person who's on the junior end from the growth background who's come out and really provide some interesting questions like, hey, are you, are you beating treasuries, right? Like really pushes the boundaries <laughs> and borders there. Uh, there are people like that for sure. But the question becomes, what is the makeup of these funds over the next few years? And are you getting the type of access to the type of founder or investor who's valuable? The flip side, especially when we saw in Web3, were a bunch of people who were just deploying capital. And they weren't helpful at all. Like there's a ton of people who just deployed capital and added no value. And there's certain senior founders for whom that's totally fine because you just know what to do. But there's an entire group of people who are more junior who could really use that help. And that, I think, is going to be the interesting thing that shakes out over the next few years. Yeah. Um, we need to start wrapping up soon. But maybe um, one last question for you is, um, where do you think the alpha is going to come from? in the next few years. We've talked about how funds have gotten larger and often large funds, um, uh, you know, have, look, they track beta more so than alpha. They kind of just follow mm -hmm. the, the general trend line of the industry, even within whatever vintage that they're in. Um, and so, you know, as an investor or if you're an LP, you know, looking across these funds, how should you be thinking about where alpha comes from um, in the industry? Is it the large funds? Is it the small funds? Is it some specific value that they add? How do you think about that, Sebastian? I think a lot of the alpha is going to be thesis-driven. And it's interesting because the the variance of those theses is going to be really high. And, and as a result, if you back the wrong thesis, yeah. 
you're going to probably be SOL. If you backed <laughs> uh, the explosion of AR, VR in 2013, you're probably looking at bad vintage 10 years later, right? Whereas like, if you back some other theses, that's going to happen now. Uh, I'm personally very bullish on the consumer gaming intersection. You talked a little about Duolingo. Um, I'm a huge fan of Sanctuary inside the Bitcraft portfolio. I'm a huge fan of people who are not just going after Red Ocean gaming spaces, but actually taking some interesting takes on new emerging spaces and taking on that risk and adding value. I think the funds that I would look for is less so the name brand of the fund. If I'm an LP, I would actually look for very interesting investors. People who have very strong opinions, hopefully weekly held, who are trying to help out companies. Uh, I actually uh, think of what Dreesen's doing with their incubator is a great example of like, hey, trying to find new interesting founders who are doing differentiated things. I think there's a probably more extreme version of their incubator that pulls from people who are like, hey, you can't even have a gaming background to be able to be an incubator. There's probably a version of that. That's probably where the alpha is um, moving forward. Now, granted, I also do think that beta exposure is not going to be horrendous for gaming, but it does come with some risks, especially because we're so vintage dependent. And so what we end up seeing, I think, over the next few years here is that as we see the types of investor change and the types of people running funds and types of partners change, we're going to have to update our priors. There's an entire generation of, of, of GPs and, and VCs who I look up to who are retiring in the next few years. Yeah. And so it's going to be interesting to see who replaces them and where the value can be captured. Super interesting answer. Final question for you before we close. If anyone wants to follow you online or reach out, where is the best place to do that? Yeah, you can check out my website at sebastianpark.com. I'm spending a lot of time on LinkedIn. Hot take, I, I think LinkedIn is generating better discourse for me and consuming discourse than Twitter right now, which is probably the first time that's happened. Yeah. <laughs> it's the first time that's happened in my life um, that something's outpacing Twitter. Um, but we'll see what happens in the next few months. Hopefully, either Twitter will figure it out or LinkedIn will continue to grow and become a powerhouse. So I'm Sebastian Park on Twitter, or Seth Park on Twitter, Sebastian Park on LinkedIn, and SebastianPark.com on the internet. Awesome. Well, Sebastian, this has been a lot of fun. As always, I'm always happy when we get a chance to chat. So thanks again for jumping on today. Anytime. Thanks for having me. If you enjoyed today's episode, whether on YouTube or your favorite podcast app, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, or give a five-star review. And if you want to reach out or provide feedback, shoot us a note at podcast at novic.co or find us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Plus, if you want to learn more about what Novic has to offer, make sure to check out our website, www.novic.co. There, you can sign up for the number one games industry newsletter, Novic Digest, level up your insights with our premium research platform, Novic Pro, or contact us to learn about our wide-ranging consulting and advisory services. Again, that is www.novic.co. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you in the next episode.